welcome to VB Engage episode 54. My name is Stuart Rogers. I'm with VentureBeat and I am joined as ever by the author of Digital Sense, the man behind CCP Digital. It is Travis Wright coming live from, where are you today, Travis? I'm sitting in front of a green screen so I could technically be anywhere, but I'm actually in my home office in Kansas City today. It looks like you are in Tunbridge today, so we are in our regular residences for a change. Yes, except it doesn't look like Tunbridge. For some reason, we have enjoyed Californian blue skies, sunshine, and 80-degree heat for the last three days. In fact, so much so that I am wearing espadrilles, linen trousers, and a Golden State Warriors t-shirt. That's how hot it is here. It's looking warm. you know. And there's not a lot of the air conditionings over there in the Tunbridge, huh? No, no, we don't do air conditioning very well over here. So my air conditioning is... Basically, a, uh, a Vornado fan that I have in my face. Now, the problem is, is that I can't have it switched on when I'm doing things like podcasts and webinars. So, basically, what normally happens, listeners, and you don't get to see this right now, um, is that I start out really dry at the start of the recording. And then his face melts. Then, yeah, it's like that scene <laughs> at the end of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, when the Ark of the Coven is opened. It's a little bit like the German guy who keeps his eyes open, right? It's frightening. It's frightening, folks. That's why we do not do a lot of video. But, from next week onwards, when we're recording this new segment, Travis, we're going to be doing it live on Facebook. So you will be able to see us recording the Newsweek segments, and you'll be able to see all of the pre-jokes that we deem not ready for air. You'll be able to see the post stuff, and then we'll stitch it all together to make a podcast. But even more excitingly, you're going to be able to pitch in from next week. So listeners, you'll be able to actually just like throwing questions and stuff and, and help us to affect the way that Newsweek uh, section comes out for VB Engage. So look out for that next week. That's great. Um, we just did, a, we just did a test right now on Facebook Live yeah. on your profile. So next week and every additional one that we do live will be, I believe, on the VentureBeat Facebook page, correct? Absolutely. So if you're not a fan of the VentureBeat Facebook page, go ahead and head over there. Just search for VentureBeat, go to the VentureBeat page, click on like, maybe even click on see first or notify or something like that. Get notified when we go live. And from next week, we will start doing this live on the VentureBeat Facebook page. And then also we have a competition that has been going on. So how have we determined the winner? I know we had a thousand-ish entrants, right? We are very, very close to picking a winner. At the time of recording this, there were four days left on the competition. So the competition will end when this airs. And that means we get to then pick a winner. And the next episode after that, we'll be able to announce the winner on BB Engage. And what's fun about that is, of course, we'll be doing that live on the Facebook page. This is going to be exciting, yeah. folks. We're giving doing our first competition announcement winner during our first Facebook Live. You're going to want to tune into that. That'll be exciting. And you do not have to be on the show uh, watching live to win it. You just have to be in it to win it. <laughs> We've got an amazing guest coming up later on, Taylor Freeman of the team behind Upload VR and uh, all of the different co-working spaces that have VR and AR and mixed reality studios 
There's Upload in, in San Francisco. There's the new Upload in LA, which they very graciously gave me a tour of three weeks before it opened. It, it still looked like a construction site when I was walking around it, but they were working furiously to get it done. You're going to love that interview. We had Christian Circus Australia last week. Uh, next week, we've got TJ Leonard, uh, which I'm really looking forward to. But I guess we first ought to get into uh, the news and you know check out what's been happening in the world. What was the thing that sort of stood out for you as uh, very interesting this week, sir? Well, you know, I'm a big fan of the Twitters. I've been on Twitter now for over 10 years. And, well, there's a couple of things that, that popped up that was really interesting for me because I'm in the B2B space. So, for one... Twitter created an ad format that's going to allow to put bots in your DMs. Like, we don't have enough bots messaging us via DMs already. Now, they have a new way for advertisers to boost your chat experience with promoted tweets and direct message cards are going to allow brands to reach users and start an experience with a bot in their Twitter feed. Yes, we need more bots on the Twitters. So, you know, I'm, I'm not even mad about this one. I actually quite like it as an ad format. You get this standard ad, right? It looks just like any other Twitter ad. In other words, there's a card. So you've got some text, you've got an image, and then underneath, it looks like a Twitter poll. Uh, but you can clearly see the little DM icon mm-hmm. um, next to each of the choices. And so then when you click on one of those... It's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure DM message at that point with a bot. You know, whichever one of those you choose is obviously going to change the DMs that the bot starts sending you. And then you're having a little conversation with a brand in the background. And I should imagine at some point they'll probably offer you a coupon or an offer or something like that. You know, if it's something that interests me and if, if it's a product or service that I care about, that's actually not a bad way to engage me. I kind of like that. It could be annoying or it could be really interesting. Now, I do like how some accounts, for example, United, has the support feature with the DMs. So, you know, you you message them, then you can actually chat with somebody that can help you manage a flight, right? And if they take some of the highlights that's working well on some of these other products and are implementing it with this bot, and they're not making it like the Crowdfire bots and the other stuff that's just automatically DMing you crap, I think this could be valuable for sure. Honestly, I kind of like it. We'll see how it goes. I mean, as you say, it all comes down to the content. And if people do make really annoying bots, then it's going to die very quickly. But uh, as long as you know advertisers are respectful and, and you know, produce something that's engaging and interesting and fun, I'm kind of for it. I like that. I think it's something that might give Twitter's advertising a, a nice little injection there. I think it's it's not bad at all. We talk about bots a lot. And, of course, that links us into artificial intelligence all the time. There's a new AI studio called All Turtles, and All Turtles have basically backed eight startups. We've got to do the full disclosure thing. Evernote's CEO, Phil uh, Liven, announced plans to leave his job as managing director of an investment firm called General Catalyst, and he is instrumental in launching All Turtles, but co-founders are Jessica Collier and John Cifuentes. Now, we have to say this, John Cifuentes used to be one of our analysts at VB Insight, which is the research arm of VentureBeat. So, um, I believe but, he uh, actually built the bot landscape document. built the bot we, landscape. Yeah, which was great. Yeah. So he's spent a lot of time thinking about bots and AI and machine learning, and he, him and uh, Jessica had clarity and some amazing inspiration, and they said, hey, turtles all the way down. John's gone from, from analyzing bots to being in the thick of it. So, uh, you know, good for him. I'm, I'm really pleased for him. But these different startups that they've backed are really, really interesting. One of the ones that I want to just pick out is is when we had the original uh, Mobile Beat 
and we turned it basically into like a bot summit. We had just so many people come from all over the world and we just talked about for two days bots, bots, bots and bots. It was really the first conference that just focused on chatbots um, anywhere in the world. And one of the lightning talks, uh, one of the showcases, was this amazing bot that Eugenia Kuda created called Luca. And it really touched me. You know, Luca was basically created to memorialize her friend, a guy called Roman Mazaranko. Roman died in a traffic accident in 2015. And what Eugenia did was use machine learning to create a bot based on their conversations, because they used to chat to each other every single day, that would allow her to continue to chat to a version of Roman, like a bot that is replicating Roman. And they've now spun this off into a company called Replica, a subsidiary of Luca. And it's going beyond sort of making personal assistance. It's really creating what, you know, Soul Machine CEO Mark Sagar calls digital ghosts. So it's kind of like the essence of a person to live on. Yeah, there's now, like I a know... Black Mirror episode of that, right? Very similar to that. Which, right. Which uh, actually created the full robot version of this. And so I've talked about this in, in a few places because I my business card, I you know, I have this thing called uh, it's the Mastermind Group on my business card, and it's based off of Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich Mastermind in that book. And so I put all my favorite people throughout the history of time on my business card, right? And I update it every year. I add new people and take people off. But it'd be so cool to actually have the AI behind each one of those people, right? Like, it's very similar to this replica idea where you're able to put in all the different messages that John Lennon said, every article that he wrote, every interview that he had, every book that he wrote, every song lyric, throw all that into AI and then create a John Lennon that could speak to you, right, in his own voice, technically. I've imagined that for 10 years, how cool this could possibly be. Now we're getting to the point where the AI is strong enough and the importing of all of this data into them are creating these really interesting, emotionally driven experiences that people can communicate with these bots that are true AI, but they have the emotional feel of a real person. So uh, it could be Really interesting, and then it is also down the road, kind of like Black Mirror did, which I remember, which was pretty wild when that woman had her dead husband as a robot. The future is here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> All of the eight startups that they're backing are just uh, absolutely fascinating. We had Veronica Belmont on from Growbot, right? Uh, Octane AI, uh, that is with uh, Ben Parr. He's going to be on a future episode as well. So not only are these companies doing a lot of really cool stuff, we're talking about leaders and butter.ai, but we've been talking about a lot of these companies. We've been talking about a lot of these players. We've had a lot of them on the show, and we're going to continue to have more people on the show in this space because it's such an interesting space that pertains to marketing. Yeah, absolutely. We need to wrap up the news fairly soon, but is there anything else that caught your eye this week? Oh, absolutely. One thing that was really interesting to me was the B2B targeted marketing platform Demandbase. They've been killing it, and guess what? They just raised an extra $65 million round of funding by uh, Sageview Capital and Silver Lake Waterman. So very interesting. Also, I believe Adobe jumped in there, did some stuff. They put some coin in. So it's been around for a little around 10 years. They do some really interesting stuff over demand base. You know, B2B, being able to target using their database and, and aligning their IP addresses with company information so you can literally detect when an employee or prospect is visiting the website or viewing one of its ads. 
It's very amazing. I've actually had lots of conversations with him over there. And for example, this is not part of their product, but in theory, they could say, oh, well, I wonder what kind of content Elon Musk has been reading. Like, they literally have technology to basically reverse engineer that. Now, that's not part of their overall platform, but it's really fascinating when you can identify based on IP addresses and based on all these different factors and, you know, the unique ID on your phone and et cetera, et cetera, to be able to tell who's doing what. That's a great way to do marketing in B2B world. It can get a little creepy, so hopefully they're balancing that out. But uh, AI and machine learning technology in B2B, they just got another $65 million to keep leading that space. So very interesting. Yeah. Demandbase is taking a really big swing at this. They'd raised $93 million in equity financing prior to this. This is a brand new cash injection. Looping back to everything else that we've been talking about, not just in this episode, but throughout the whole of 2017, is really there to accelerate the innovation of its AI and machine learning technology. AI and machine learning, just remember this, it's not all about B2C. B2B is being affected just as much as B2C is when it comes to artificial intelligence. We are in a brave new world, are we not? Yes, we are in an ABM world. (laughs) Hey, listen, talking of brave new worlds, um, how about brave new computer-generated worlds that you can completely lose yourself in and become totally immersed in? I think it's probably a great time for us to stop talking about the news and start talking to Taylor Freeman of Upload. How about that? Let's go. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have a great treat for us today. We have Taylor Freeman. Taylor is the founder and CEO of Upload. Not only Upload VR, but there's also Upload SF. They now opened up Upload LA. Upload NYC is on its way. This is exciting stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Taylor to the show. How are you doing, Taylor? Fantastic. Thank you, Travis. Thank you so um, much. Yeah, it's awesome to see you. I'm, I'm currently, uh, just for our listeners, currently looking at Taylor on Skype. Uh, I happen to be in the, in the UK this week. The last time I saw Taylor was similarly on the other side of a piece of glass because I was actually at Upload LA uh, three weeks before you uh, you opened. You were still in heavy construction. I don't think you had a nail gun in your hand, but I certainly heard a lot of nail guns going off, uh, Taylor. Do you, do you want to tell us a little bit more about what you're doing at Upload LA down in uh, Silicon Beach? Yeah, thank you, sir. So essentially, the mission behind all of this from the start was really just to try to unify all the resources that the professional community of, of the VR and AR professionals had a place to come where they could get access to hardware, a place where they could get access to mentors and corporate partners and workspace and you know all the things that they really needed to actually succeed. And so you know we started off in San Francisco with a space there, which now has about 50 VR and AR companies. And so we just saw a huge, huge explosion of, of VR excitement and, and a lot of startup activity in Los Angeles. So we really thought it made sense to come down there. And then, you know, the other major component of the space is that, you know, we're setting up like a school essentially for VR developers and creatives. And so that's a major component of the LA space. We actually have a, a large classroom uh, that can be divided into two classrooms. And so we'll be running all sorts of developer training from early stage, sort of just getting your hands wet uh, with Unity, all the way through a master level course that's you know designed for expert level developers that want to transition into the VR industry. That strikes me as really something that is is needed in in VR and AR because I, you know I think we can all agree that the, the hardware, depending upon the level of the hardware, we've got everything from a mobile experience with 
things like Daydream and uh, Samsung Gear VR, all the way through to the sort of upper tier on VR, which is, you know, the Oculus and, and Sony and HTC. Of course, you know, Sony are doing well in terms of units uh, on that side of things. HTC are doing doing great work there. Then on the AR side, you know, we're, we're maybe uh, a little bit away from uh, the hardware being as, as good as it needs to be for the kind of experiences that we've been offered. But all of this is going to die very, very quickly and become the new 3D TV unless people are creating engaging content, right? Yeah, I mean, to your point, the hardware is really going to be handled by the major companies. I mean, there's so much momentum from HTC and Google and, and Oculus and all these guys. So yeah, it is the era of content. You know, we're saying 2017 really needs to be representing just pure content. And I think you actually see that in the conferences, for example, like CES for 2015, 2016, huge sort of presence for Oculus there showcasing the hardware, a huge presence for a number of these other companies. And actually this year, very little hardware presence. But then when you look over at a show like E3 or GDC, where it's all content focused, massive presence. I found that to be really interesting that the industry is definitely recognizing that now. And, and you're seeing you know, Oculus and HTC and IMAX and all these guys launching content funds specifically to sort of service that need. Because you know, as we all know, it's a, still a formative industry. There's no real ironed out business model for consumer entertainment style content. So right now it's just really you know, requiring some of these larger players to foot the bill to get this stuff going. But I agree. I mean, I think we have an opportunity right now to start developing the foundational apps. It's definitely an exciting time. I mean, I, I had the, uh, the pleasure to go to the CES upload party this past year, and, and it was amazing. There was like a thousand people there, and every place that I would go, and I would have, I, I basically just sort of positioned myself and see what brilliant people were coming nearby. And I ended up having a, a conversation with the head of content creation for Oculus had a conversation with so many amazing people, the head of the ARVR Association and all these really interesting people that, that are doing really epic things within AR and VR. So that's one of the things that's really interesting to me is like when we're talking about contents, like I've had ideas around you can re-envision music when you put on your headphones, right? I mean, you, put your, you put your goggles on and your headphones on and you can re-visualize music. Music lyrics can fly at you. You can just, you can be in an equalizer. I mean, things are changing. And then the reimagining books. I mean, I was thinking like, man, you can literally like imagine VR with reading the Harry Potter book. You're actually in Hogwarts and the, and the, and the words are flying at you and you're hearing stuff and you can see the types of content that are going to come out for these types of devices is going to be incredible. What are some of the things, some of the use cases that you've seen that are out now that are maybe sort of wow you because you are in this space, you're seeing it every day. What are the things that are making you go like, wow, I, I can't even believe this is a thing already? That was a beautiful illustration. It sounds like you need to get into content creation for VR. I got, a, like I got a few ideas on that stuff for sure. <laughs> Crush that. I mean, before you answer that question, Tyler, I just, I, I'm now seeing lyrics coming at me like a wrecking ball. Exciting and frightening at the same time. Yes. <laughs> uh, Travis, to answer your question, you know, there's a couple different things that I call them my aha moments in VR. And I've had a few. The first one was trying VR for the first time and just, you know, having that first immersive experience, being able to look around, you know, understanding that, you know, we're able to sort of replace our visual and oral senses with this device. I think that was the first one. Second one was actually just using the like configuration utility on the second Oculus developer kit where you could actually lean in. And I remember there was a 
demo where they had a, a flower on a table and you were on this like big open huge room and you could lean in and like look at the back of the flower which was just like the craziest thing ever compared to the DK1. And then I remember the next one, I, I had my hands and I had room scale, right? And I could walk around inside this space and sort of move in what's called six degrees of freedom with my hands, so just full tracking. So I think all of those iterations have led to a number of use cases that, to answer your question specifically, I think are the most exciting. One thing that I'm just absolutely positive in this year and next year will really just start to solidify as just a core component is in architecture and real estate and ultimately any sort of design that involves large scale visualization or objects. It's just, it's not even 10x or 100x. It's just another dimension better, right? It goes from mm. two dimensions to three dimensions and you can actually spatially understand what you're doing. So that's one thing. You know, the other thing too is, you know, I've been sort of calling it a like non-deterministic experience in the sense that every single time you go in, you can have a unique and new experience. So I think, you know, one thing that enables that is a program like Tiltbrush, I think is just one of those applications that will be remembered forever. That is just a foundational piece where you can go in and you have full control. You can create in 3D space. You can scale the world up and down. You can teleport around. You can you know, you just have full control over what you're creating. And I find that to be really inspiring. The other thing is, you know, looking specifically at education and how the way that VR and immersive technology impacts the brain, it's actually more representative of having a real experience, right? You're storing a lot of that data in your hippocampus, right? You're activating your short-term, long-term memory, but also your spatial memory. There's some crazy-ass stories about kids that are five to six years old that go into a virtual baseball game, right? And they're there on the field and they're looking around. And then two years later, they ask those kids whether they remember being at the game. And all of them said that they remember being at the game. You know, there's some philosophical dilemmas baked into all of this. And so it's something that I think, you know, we're really focused on trying to figure out, okay, you know, what are the ground rules, right? Like, you know, if we find any like subliminal messaging or subliminal manipulation within these experiences. Because that'll be really easy to do with the visuals and audio, right? Just little brain tricks. So things like that, you know, if you find that zero strike policy, you know, shut that down just because it is such a powerful medium that, you know, I think it requires people to really consider the positive as well as the negative of such a powerful tool. So that's on the VR side, but I do want to actually mention, you know, one other trend that I think is going to be one of the most essential components to actual future adoption of head-mounted displays, which is mobile phone-based augmented reality. Tim Cook is all over the news now with how he thinks VR is the next big thing, it's gonna be bigger than mobile, blah, 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 right? So we're going to start with mobile phone-based augmented reality, right? And you have, Apple has a thousand people at least in Israel working on computer vision. They've acquired about 30 companies that enable computer vision AR. So essentially you'll see sort of taking your phone pointing it at the real world and getting used to this idea of that this now becomes like a, an intelligent set of eyes for us. I really believe that the companies that sort of ride that initial wave and sort of launch those foundational apps for mobile augmented reality will just be in the most amazing position when we start transitioning to HMD-based augmented reality, which is certainly coming. I mean, it's when you look at the efficiency gains between having to pull your phone out of your pocket, only having about a four inch screen, having to tap on glass in two dimensions to interact versus now having a 360 degree screen, whatever you want all around you, right? Like natural gestures, eye tracking, having that information instantly when you need it. 
it's definitely a multi sort of step and phased process to get there. There's a, a lot of different facets here. I mean, you've got, as you say, you've got the mobile uh, side of things, which you know definitely from uh, an, an augmented reality point of view is going to be a, a great entry point for a lot of consumers. You have virtual reality on mobile. You have virtual reality connected to consoles and PCs. Augmented reality at the moment is, is kind of interesting because although a lot of people are thinking about it from a consumer case, there are some companies out there who are actually doing uh, some incredibly smart stuff in things like the construction industry. The daiquiris of this world, for example, are doing some really smart stuff with construction with their augmented hard hats. And they've got some very cool technology for identifying spaces and, and, and you know, modeling spaces, even in bright sunlight, which a lot of companies have had a problem with. That's very much at the top end, right, where the big companies can afford to buy in because it's expensive at that top end. And, of course, it's, it's not going to be full consumer adoption. Mm-hmm. Actually, um, Scoble had told us that uh, Shanghai Disney was created in 100% uh, virtual reality. Actually, Scoble and I went to Shanghai Disney back in June. And uh, it was interesting when we were walking through there, and he was like, dude, this was all built in VR before. And they were like, no, we need to move Tomorrowland over here. We need to move the." So they were walking through the experience right. before they were even building it. It's pretty amazing. I mean, the thing, you know, obviously the consumer adoption side of things, if we think about something as simple as Snap Spectacles, which are not AR or VR, but they are of the ilk, right? There's something that, you know, people can get into. They're $140. But there's only a few thousand of them in use around the world right now. When it comes to mainstream adoption of head-mounted displays, are we going to see the same type of 20-year cycle that we see with other disruptive tech before it actually becomes really fully mainstream and accepted because of the cultural change that's needed in order for people to accept people walking around with glasses that can you know, take images and, uh, and augment reality? You know, the thing that's interesting to remember about immersive technology is that it's actually been around for a while. When you look at sort of the early days of VR, you, you know, you look back to the early 60s with Ivan Sutherland sort of inventing what he called like the Sword of Damocles, which you literally had this huge, like it was called the Sword of Damocles because it was so heavy and like metal and huge. Mm. And so, you know, we've had VR sort of technology positional tracking, you know, three-dimensional displays, stereoscopic displays for almost 50 years now, you know, almost even over 50 years. It's kind of one of those things that Palmer Lucky kind of made it like an overnight success over, you know, 50 years to an overnight success kind of. And so it really, I mean, it was just the perfect timing of all the convergent technologies, right? The smartphone manufacturers, Samsung, Apple, these guys are investing like billions of dollars in mobile devices for their screens, their accelerometers, their processing power, right? Like, that smartphone war is really, I think, what powered the possibility of, of AR being realistic today at an affordable price. To your question on the cultural stigma, when we look at sort of a parallel of Google Glass a couple of years ago, right, the term glass hole kind of <laughs> emerged. <right? laughs> yeah. And speaking of Robert Scoble in the shower, the concern, I think, primarily was around the fact that you had this camera, right, that was always on. You didn't know when it was on, if someone was recording you. You know, you run into the same problem with spectacles, but they actually very consciously made sure that you had that little ring that was sort of showing that you were recording because, you know, it's just a huge, huge issue for people not knowing whether they're being captured. But again, I think over time, these societal sort of expectations will start to shift and it'll just be this thing where you just expect by being out in the world, you sort of subscribe to this this exposure 
again, once the technology sort of hits that pivotal point where you can do things that you just simply couldn't do on a flat screen, or you're seeing 5, 10, you know, 20x efficiency gains by moving into a three-dimensional sort of natural interface platform, I think that those stigmas will go away. Another thing, you know, that a lot of people disagree with me about is that I think voice is going to be huge and that people will actually be totally comfortable sitting on a bus voice dictating to their HMD. You know, I think that when you look at Siri and Google Voice and some of these other technologies, it's getting better and better and better to the point where ultimately I'll be able to kind of whisper to my device and I won't have to be loud and annoying, right? But I'll be able to just instantly get whatever I need just through voice as well as eye tracking and gaze. We are kind of on a, a long path to full consumer, like every single person having a pair of AR glasses the same way that just about every person now has a mobile phone, at least in like first world countries. We will see that and it, it will just take, again, reduction in form factor. It needs to look sexy, right? Glasses are a statement, a fashion statement. And so anything that you're wearing on your face, you want to feel really good about. So I think a company like Apple has a really, really fantastic opportunity to come out hot and create something that people are really proud to wear. There's a lot of factors at play, but I think ultimately it just comes down to figuring out like how we get those 10, 20, 50x efficiency gains through the platform. There's been some really interesting stuff that's even popped up. I mean, I, I went to, the, to CES and was looking at some of the different augmented glasses and some of the different things that's popping up. I know Kickstarter had one that, that came up not long ago called View. And these are basically glasses that have that bone induction on the earpiece. You can literally hear it says, hey, you need to get up. You've been sitting for an hour. You can get take phone calls. And, and I think there's some element of things you can see on the screen. But, it, but it's really interesting. Actually, I came by your Upload SF back in February. I brought my son to San Francisco for the first time and uh, was chatting with your PR person. Came over to your Upload SF and hung out with Oz over there. Yeah, my son got like 90 minutes of playing around with all this unbelievable VR. We ended up going like to we ended up going to Alcatraz and Golden Gate Bridge, and then we ended up going to Mere Woods and seeing all this. Went to Google and Facebook, all this cool stuff. His most favorite thing of all was going to upload SF and playing around and flying around on Google Earth and all these other games. It was just. And Stuart, he's a big fan of this as well. I, actually, he's not. He hates this term. But I, I coined this several episodes back, and I was like, you know, what I'd like to do in the middle of my day is take a vacation, put my goggles uh, on, uh, sit uh, on a hammock uh, somewhere. We're, we're not bringing that back. We're not bringing that <laughs> we back. We are totally bringing back vacation. We're not bringing that I back. Go to Costa the, the Rica. No. I want to go to Costa Rica on my break, just shoot some little pineapple spray in the air, and then I sit on a hammock. Look around and <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, or like a Ray Dream or something, you know? It's, uh... <laughs> I'm actually happier with Ray Dream than I am with Ray <laughs> It's insane how powerful the technology is, right? I mean, one really awesome illustration, you know, going back to your son, right? You know, the reason why he's so impacted, you know, again, the way that it works with the brain, the way that it treats your senses, that it provides the same visual data the same audio data if you're using good ambisonics or 3D audio, that your brain literally thinks that it is receiving real experiential visual data and audio data. That translates into your body actually believing it, right? Your vestibular system, so like your inner ear believes it, which is why people start getting sick in VR if it's not an optimized experience. But one thing that I just love is that there's a, a group that was actually studying the sensation of awe 
the control that they used was VR for people that have never tried VR. So they'd put them in, they'd set them all up with EEG, and then they'd put them into like the blue by Weaver, for example. And people would just, it would activate that part of the brain of awe, and they use that as a tool to study. You know, these little illustrations to demonstrate. And the other thing, too, is that how old is your son? Uh, he's 15. Kids that are that age, you know, 12, 13, they're going to be sort of natives on this platform as they come in, right? And then you look at even younger kids, right? And, you know, Oculus is talking about, and, and some of the other players are saying, like a 13-year-old sort of baseline limit to get into VR, which I think is sort of just a, that's a safe place to start since we have to start somewhere. Uh, but when you start looking at like the kids today that are using iPads and like going over to a magazine and trying to like swipe on a magazine, right? And you think about now all of a sudden these kids are going to be growing up with full three-dimensional computer interfaces, right? It's They won't even have a, a concept of what it's like to deal with a flat screen. And then when we show them like this is how we used to type and communicate and talk to each other, they'd be like, what the hell were you guys doing? How did you look at this four-inch screen? Yeah, it's an interesting you know? space. I, I got to ask this because you, you touched on a really, really interesting point earlier, and then we went on to another question without fully addressing it because I'm very cognizant of what I watch on regular TV and media and movies. Like, I won't watch a lot of horror TV because I don't like what it does to my subconscious because I know that my brain's going to try to to process that at night when I'm sleeping, and then uh, maybe you have a nightmare. I don't normally have nightmares because I stay away from watching that kind of media. Now, is there a watchdog group or is there a, a, an oversight to VR currently that's going to put rules and limitations so that there's not that subliminal messaging and some of these other nefarious things that could that could slip into VR to, that, that could mess with people's minds? Is there some organization that, that's looking out for the people on that stuff? That's a really important question and something that right now there's a number of groups that are trying to address this, but there's nothing that's set in stone. Right. There's not what is it, the MPAA or something, the rating system for uh, film. You know, there's nothing like that right now, really, for VR in a meaningful way. And someone was telling me this, that they were at like a GameStop and they were kind of just observing people in the GameStop just because there was some VR stuff in there. And and they watched as like a couple different parents would come in and buy these mature rated games for their kids. And it was like the kid wanted the game. Oh, it's just a game. You know, how bad could it be? But like, there's some really gory visuals, really you know, terrifying visuals that if a seven or eight year old saw that, I mean, that could really be disturbing for them. Right, so, right. so with that said, right, even though there there will eventually be these rigorous standards put on and ratings, like there needs to be a lot of education to the marketplace that it actually really means something, and that if it is a mature rating, then that means like don't put your kid in there because it actually is specifically designed not for kids, right? But yeah, to answer your question, there's there really is not something that's solid, and it's been something that you know I've been really trying to push, you know, during whatever talks I'll have or anything. I'll really try to make that clear that that's something that we need to be thinking about, and it's a huge component of our education course. Like you know, right as the students are starting, we're telling them like, you guys have a huge responsibility to do this in a positive and inspiring way, and to learn from the last platforms, and essentially like take the vow that you're not going to use this for evil, right? right. As like crazy epic no mind sound. control that stuff. is yeah you know but like it really is true because you look at you know one thing i'd encourage you know people who are listening this or for you guys to check out is i guess you could call it like a brain hack or a mind hack or something it's called the mcgurk effect right and it's a, a perception sort of trick where if you look it up on youtube you can see some good videos of it but essentially it shows a gentleman's mouth saying ma 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 or pa 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 but 
he's actually saying the exact same thing. He's just saying ma, ma, ma the whole time. But when you're looking on the screen and you see his lips moving in the way that looks like he's saying pa, you literally hear pa, right? To the point where they do a split screen and you're looking on the left and you hear ma, ma, ma. You look to the right, you hear pa, 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 right? And it's clear as day, right? And you can't even like convince your brain that it's not happening. So, you know, when you look at an effect like that, that's literally on a two-dimensional screen with a lot of outside stimuli that could be happening, right? And then you imagine taking that all internal and having sort of full visual control, full audio control. We don't even have any idea what these little tricks are going to be yet. You know, I think some researchers are really starting to experiment, but there's going to be some really profound sort of subliminal techniques that people figure out, which I think, again, can be used for good, right? You could really allow someone to implant sort of a mental framework or implant some sort of foundational knowledge that they need for something in a more subliminal way, right? So it's ingrained in them. But then again, you can also really F people up in a bad way and like really sort of twist the wires in their brain with this stuff, especially when they're at a younger, more formative age. So again, it's just absolutely imperative that the industry really considers that now and tries to actively sort of build protections for it. Excellent. Thank you so much, Tyler. I mean, uh, you've been twisting the wires of our brains uh, for the last few minutes. Unfortunately, we have to bring the interview to an end. It's been absolutely awesome having you on VB Engage. Thank you ever so much. Yeah, thank you, Stuart and Travis. Awesome to be on. Absolutely. And where can people find you and connect with you online? We have two different sort of properties, which I I think is probably worth mentioning. So the company is called Upload, uh, formerly Upload Inc. So our sort of overarching site is upload.io. That's where you can learn about our workspaces. You can learn about our educational programs. You can learn about our events and some other announcements that we have coming up. We'll circle back with you guys on that soon. But then you can also, if you're interested in learning about the industry and staying up to date on news, you can go to uploadvr.com. We have a six-person full-time editorial team and a video team that's just every day trying to find the most important news for the industry and writing about it, making videos, covering it. So yeah, if you're interested in getting into the space, I definitely would suggest that as a place to start and check out. Beautiful. Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you so much to Taylor Freeman for jumping on VB Engage with us today. That was fascinating stuff talking about VR, mixed reality, where it's headed. And if you missed last week's episode, we had Christian Segastrale of Super Evil Megacorp on. Really enjoyed that. If you haven't had a chance to hear his maniacal laugh at the end, that was hilarious. Uh, Next week, we have an amazing interview with us as well, TJ Leonard. And as you know, we are having a giveaway competition, uh, a Huawei device. What's the update, sir? The competition, by the time you listen to this episode, will have just finished. And we will be putting our hands in the digital bread bin to find the name of the winner. And we will announce that winner during the live Facebook version of VB Engage Newsweek, which will be on the VentureBeat Facebook page next week. So make sure that you tune in to the very first ever VB Engage Newsweek recording that's going to be live on Facebook. So go to the VentureBeat Facebook page and, and like that. We'll announce the winner Uh, right there and then and then of course it'll be recorded for posterity uh, for next Tuesday's episode Um, it's going to be awesome and fun and we get to give away this amazing prize I just really am looking forward to it Travis yeah it's great and they actually will get to hear the news 
three or four days before anybody else if they tune into the live uh, Facebook post, right? That's the beauty of us going live with the, the Newsweek segment. Um, you know, you're going to get the uh, the skinny on what's been happening in the week. Absolutely. And my son is going to be very disappointed to realize that he cannot win the Huawei media pad. He's added his name to the thing a few times. Like, well, what if I win, Dad? I'm like, yeah, no, you won't win. So... Terms, terms of conditions, conditions apply. Sorry about that. Sorry about Friend, that friends and family can't win it. <laughs> <laughs> Next week, we will be back in action with episode 55. So, for Travis Wright, goodbye. Uh, for Stuart Rogers, it's Jan Tumire. We'll see you guys next week.